very warm welcome to all listeners. Uh, it's the latest edition of the Current Bun, the place for all things current and not so current. In this uh, special edition, we'll be looking at the poems of William McGonagall. Um, we've just been watching the Olympics, and it's obviously brilliant to see such fantastic athletic performances. The motto, of course, is faster, higher, stronger. But what about those who are lower, slower and weaker? The Eric the Eels or the Eddie the Eels of this world? Well, in poetic terms, William McGonagall is a pretty tragic figure, really. Um, He grew up as a handloom weaver. Uh, in the time of the Industrial Revolution. So it was a cottage industry, very, very skilled job, uh, but obviously couldn't compete with the automation, the invention of the spinning jenny, um, which virtually put thousands of people out of jobs uh, at the end, towards the end of the 19th century. William Gonigal, Um, therefore took up his new role as a poet. And the sad thing about him really is that he was convinced that his work was masterpieces of of brilliance. Um, He went as far as hiking to Balmoral to have an audience with Queen Victoria, um, upon which he was rebuffed. And... uh, he was convinced, really, that he was the equal of Tennyson, the Poet Laureate. Well, we'll find that out for ourselves. But just to a philosophical note, uh, there there is a sort of flip side, if you like, of mediocrity, where it gets so bad that suddenly things become quite good. So uh, here's a few examples. Loch Ness. Beautiful Loch Ness, the truth to express, your landscapes are lovely and gay. Along each side of your waters, to Fort Augustus all the way, your scenery is romantic, with rocks and hills gigantic, enough to make one frantic as they view thy beautiful heathery hills and their clear crystal rills, and the beautiful woodlands so green on a fine summer day, from Inverness all the way, where the deer and the doe together doth play, and the beautiful falls of foyers with its crystal spray, as clear as the day, enchanting and gay, to the traveller as he gazes thereon, that he feels amazed with delight to see the water falling from such a height, that his heed feels giddy with the scene, as he views the falls of foyers and the woodlands so green, that he exclaims in an ecstasy of delight, O oh, beautiful Loch Ness, I must sincerely confess, that you are the most beautiful to behold, with your lovely landscapes and water so cold. And as he turns from the scene, he says with a sigh, Oh, beautiful Loch Ness, I must bid you goodbye. Well, here you can see the uh, chief aspects of his work that have re- earned him such renown to this day, really. Um, so there is total lack of poetic meter or scansion, and just... Water is cold, woodlands are green, Loch Ness is beautiful, and the rocks on the hills are gigantic, enough to make you frantic. Um, It's almost as he just clutches for a rhyme. Any word will do as long as it rhymes. 
and he just doesn't mind about repetition. Everything is beautiful. Uh, okay, next poem. A descriptive poem on the silvery tay. Beautiful silvery tay, with your landscape so lovely and gay, along each side of your waters to Perth all the way. No other river in the world has got scenery more fine, only, I am told, the beautiful Rhine. Near to Wormit Bay it seems very fine, where the railway bridge is towering above its waters sublime. And the beautiful ship Mars, with her juvenile towers, both lively and gay, just carelessly lie, by night and by day, in the beautiful bay of the Silvery Tay. Beautiful, beautiful Silvery Tay. The scenery is enchanting on a fine summer day. Nearby Balmerino it is beautiful to behold, when the trees are in full bloom and the cornfields seem like gold, and nature's face seems gay, and the lambkins they do play, and the humming bee is on the wing. It is enough to make one sing, while they carelessly do stray along the beautiful banks of the Silvery Tay. Beautiful Silvery Tay, rolling smoothly on your way, nearby Newport as clear as the day, Thy scenery around is charming, I'll be bound, and would make the heart of anyone feel light and gay on a fine summer day to view the beautiful scenery along the banks of the Silvery Tay. The Tay was to become something that defined McGonagall in many respects. Shakespeare had his Hamlet, Wordsworth had his Daffodils, and McGonagall was inspired by the Tay River and the Bridge and the whale, uh, to write some of his most memorable poems. This is the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, with your numerous arches and pillars in so grand array, and your central girders which seem to the eye to be almost towering to the sky, the greatest wonder of the day, and a great beautification to the river Tay, most beautiful to be seen near by Dundee and the Magdalen Green. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay that has caused the Emperor of Brazil to leave his home far away, incognito in his dress, and view thee ere he passed along en route to Inverness. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, the longest of the present day, that has ever crossed o'er a tidal river stream, most gigantic to be seen near by Dundee and the Magdalen Green. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, which will cause great rejoicing on the opening day, and hundreds of people will come from far away, also the Queen, most gorgeous to be seen, nearby Dundee and the Magdalen Green. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, and prosperity to Provost Cox, who has given £30,000 and upwards away, in helping to erect the bridge of the Tay, most handsome to be seen, nearby Dundee and the Magdalen Green. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, I hope that God will project all passengers by night and by day, and that no accident will befall them while crossing the bridge of the Silvery Tay, for that would be most awful to be seen nearby Dundee and the Magdalen Green. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, and prosperity to Messrs Bush and Groth, the famous engineers of the present day, who have succeeded in erecting the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, which stands unequalled to be seen nearby Dundee and the Magdalen Green. And almost predictably, this was followed by the Tay Bridge disaster.
beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. Twas about seven o'clock at night, and the wind it blew with all its might, and the rain came pouring down, and the dark clouds seemed to frown, and the demon of the air seemed to say, I'll blow down the Bridge of Tay. When the train left Edinburgh, the passengers' hearts were light and felt no sorrow, but Boreas blew a terrific gale, which made their hearts for to quail, and many of the passengers with fear did say, I hope God will send us safe across the Bridge of Tay. But when the train came near to Wormit Bay, Boreas heeded loud and angry bray, and shook the central girders of the Bridge of Tay on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. So the train sped on with all its might, and Bonnie Dundee soon hove in sight, and the passengers' hearts felt light, thinking they would enjoy themselves on the new year, with their friends at home they loved most dear, and wished them all a happy new year. So the train moved slowly along the Bridge of Tay, until it was about midway, and the central girders with a crash gave way, and down went the train and passengers into the Tay. The storm fiend did loudly bray, because ninety lives had been taken away, on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. As soon as the catastrophe came to be known, the alarm from mouth to mouth was blown, and the cry rang out all over the town, Good heavens, the Tay Bridge is blown down, and the passenger train from Edinburgh, which filled all people's hearts with sorrow, and made for them for to turn pale, cause none of the passengers were saved to tell the tale, how the disaster happened on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. It must have been an awful sight to witness in the dusky moonlight, while the storm fiend did laugh and angry did bray along the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. O oh, ill-fated bridge of the Silvery Tay, I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses, at least many sensible men confesses, for the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. McGonagall also writes of the famous Tay Whale. "'Twas in the month of December, and in the year 1883, that the monster whale came to Dundee, resolved for a few days to sport and play, and devour the small fishes in the silvery tay. So the monster whale did sport and play, among the innocent little fishes in the beautiful tay, until he was seen by some men one day, and they resolved to catch him without delay. When it became to be known a whale was seen in the tay, some men began to talk and to say, We must try and catch this monster of a whale, so come on, brave boys, and never say fail. Then the people together in crowds did run, resolved to capture the whale and to have some fun. So small boats were launched on the silvery tay, while the monster of the deep did sport and play. Oh, it was a most fearful and beautiful sight to see it lashing the water with its tail all its might and making the water ascend like a shower of hail with one lash of its ugly and mighty tail. Then the water did descend on the men in the boats which wet their trousers and also their coats. 
but it only made them the more determined to catch the whale. But the whale shook at them his tail. Then the whale began to puff and to blow, while the men and the boats after him did go, armed well with harpoons for the fray, which they fired at him without dismay. And they laughed and grinned just like wild baboons, when they fired at him their sharp harpoons. But when struck with the harpoons, he dived below, which filled his pursuers' hearts with woe, because they guessed they had lost a prize, which caused the tears to well up in their eyes, and in that their anticipations were only right, because he sped on to Stonehaven with all his might, and first seen by the crew of a Gordon fishing boat, which they thought was a big cobble upturned afloat. But when they drew near they saw it was a whale, so resolved to tow it ashore without fail. So they got a rope from each boat tied round his tail, and landed their burden at Stonehaven without fail. And when the people saw it their voices they did raise, declaring that the brave fishermen deserved great praise. And my opinion is that God sent the whale in time of need, no matter what other people may think or what is their creed. I know fishermen in general are often very poor, and God in his goodness sent it drive poverty from their door. So Mr John Wood has bought it for £226, and has brought it to Dundee all safe and all sound, which measures 40 feet in length from the snout to the tail, so advise the people far and near to see it without fail. Then hurrah for the mighty monster whale, which has got 17 feet 4 inches from tip to tip of a tail, which can be seen for a sixpence or a shilling, that is to say, if the people all are willing. Well, that masterpiece inspired an effort of my own. Uh, This is the famous sperm whale, after William McGonagall. "'Twas in the month of March in the year 2013 that the sperm whale was beached due to plastic debris. It had voraciously feasted when it was at sea, not on plankton, but on sheeting, meant to grow tomatoes for our tea. Oh, it was a most fearful and beautiful sight, but we must all be aware of the whale's sad plight. To see it lashing the water with its tail should make us all weep and wail. They bravely cut up the whale without delay and found 59 items of plastic in its stomach all in disarray. The stench was revolting, some would say, but most revolting of all was the stench of money. So Aldi, Carrefour and Tesco, exotic fruits can't be grown al fresco. Consumers want their fruit out of season, so greenhouses use lots of plastic sheeting. And supermarkets know they can make plenty of profit by ignoring health and safety, not caring about the vomit, inducing tale of the famous sperm whale, never more to lash its ugly and mighty tail. Then the people did descend on the supermarket bosses to make sure they did the right thing, never mind any losses. The people were angry and put up a good fight. Will the supermarkets ever listen or care about our sea's plight? Then the people together in crowds to protest. Resolve to change this messed up system with civil unrest. To protect our planet, as it's the only one we've got. To fight for a decent future for all, is that such a naive thought? On the beach of beautiful Andalusia, the dead whale sadly lay. And so I will conclude this awful and terrible lay. There's a petition to be signed, which here can be reached. To protect our seas, no more whales to be beached. McGonagall was often inspired by contemporary disasters to write his poems, and this one is no exception. This is Saving a Train. 
"'Twas in the year of 1869 and on the 19th of November, "'which the people in southern Germany will long remember, "'the great rainstorm for which for twenty hours did pour down, "'that the rivers were overflowed and petty streams all around. "'The rain fell in such torrents as had never been seen before, "'and it seemed like a second deluge the mighty torrents roar. "'At nine o'clock at night the storm did rage and moan, "'when Carl Springle set out on his crutches all alone.' from the handsome little hut in which he dwelt, with some food to his father, for whom he greatly felt, who was watching at the railway bridge, which was built upon a perpendicular rocky ridge. The bridge was composed of iron and wooden blocks, and crossed over the Devil's Gulch, an immense cleft of rocks, 200 feet wide and 150 feet deep, and enough to make one's flesh to creep. Far beneath the bridge a mountain stream did boil and rumble, and on that night did madly toss and tumble, Oh, it must have been an awful sight to see the great cataract falling from such a height. It was the duty of Carl's father to watch the bridge on stormy nights and warn the oncoming trains of danger with the red lights. So on this stormy night, boy Carl hobbled along, slowly and fearlessly upon his crutches because he wasn't strong. He struggled on manfully with all his might through the fearful darkness of the night and half-blinded by the heavy rain, but still resolved the bridge to gain. But when within one hundred yards of the bridge it gave way with an awful crash and fell into the roaring flood below and made a fearful splash which rose high above the din of the storm the like brave Carl never heard since he was born. Then father, father, cried Carl in his loudest tone. Father, father, he shouted again in very pitiful moans but no answering voice did reply which caused him to heave a deep-fetched sigh. And now to brave Carl the truth was clear that he had lost his father dear, and he cried, My poor father's lost and cannot be found. He's gone down with the bridge and has been drowned. But he resolves to save the oncoming train, so every nerve and muscle he does strain, and he trudges along dauntlessly on his crutches, and tenaciously to them he clutches. And just in time he reaches his father's car, to save the oncoming train from afar. So he seizes the red light and swings it round, and cried with all his might, The bridge is down, the bridge is down. So forward his father's car he drives, determined to save the passengers' lives, struggling hard with might and main, hoping his struggle won't prove in vain. So on comes the iron horse snorting and rumbling, and the mountain torrent at the bridge kept roaring and tumbling. While brave Carl keeps shouting, the bridge is down, the bridge is down, he cried with a pitiful wail and sound. But thank heaven the dungeon driver sees the red light, that Carl keeps swinging round his head with all his might. But bang, bang goes the engine with a terrible crash, and the car is dashed all to smash. But the breaking of the car stops the train, and poor Carl's struggle is not in vain. But poor soul he was found stark dead, crushed and mangled from foot to head. And all the passengers were all loud in Carl's praise, and from the cold wet ground they did him raise, and tears for brave Carl fell silently around, because he'd saved two hundred passengers from being drowned. In a quiet village cemetery he now sleeps among the silent dead, in the south of Germany, with a tombstone at his head, erected by the passengers he saved in the train, and which to his memory will long remain. McGonagall was also a fierce advocate of temperance, which must have gone down well in the pubs that he frequented in Scotland 
uh, reciting his poems, which the crowd would respond cheerfully by throwing vegetables and fruits at him. This is the demon drink. O thou demon drink, thou fell destroyer, thou curse of society and its greatest annoyer, what hast thou done to society? Let me think. I answer, thou hast caused the most of ills, thou demon drink. Thou causeth the mother to neglect her child, also the father to act as he were wild, so he neglects his loving wife and family dear, by spending his earnings foolishly on whiskey, rum and beer. And after spending his earnings foolishly, he beats his wife, the man that promised to protect her during life. And so the man would if there was no drink in society, for seldom a man beats his wife in a state of sobriety. And if he does, perhaps he finds his wife foo. Then that causes no doubt a great hullabaloo. When he finds his wife drunk, he begins to frown, and in a fury of passion he knocks her down. And in that knock down, she fractures her head, and perhaps the poor wife she is killed dead. Whereas if there was no strong drink to be got, to be killed wouldn't have been the poor wife's lot. Then the unfortunate husband is arrested and cast into jail, and sadly his fate he does bewail, and he curses the hour that ever was born, and paces his cell up and down, very forlorn. And when the day of his trial draws near, no doubt for the murdering of his wife he drops a tear, and he exclaims, O thou demon drink, through thee I must die, and on the scaffold he warns the people from drink to fly. Because, whenever a father or a mother takes a drink, Step by step on in crime they do sink, until their children loses all affection for them, and in justice we cannot their children condemn. The man that gets drunk is little else than a fool, and is in the habit, no doubt, of advocating for home rule. But the best home rule for him, as far as I can understand, is the abolition of a strong drink from the land. And the men that get drunk in general wants home rule, but such men, I rather think, should keep their heads cool, and try and learn more sense, I most earnestly do pray, and try to get strong drink abolished without delay. If drink was abolished, how many peaceful homes would there be, just for instance in the beautiful town of Dundee? Then this world would be heaven, whereas it's a hell, and the people would have more peace in it to dwell. Alas, strong drink makes men and women fanatics, and helps to fill our prisons with lunatics. And if there was no strong drink, such cases wouldn't be, which would be a very glad sight for all Christians to see. Oh, admit a man may be a very good man, but in my opinion he cannot be a true Christian, as long as he partakes of strong drink, the more that he may differently think. But no matter what he thinks, I say nay, for by taking it he helps to lead his brother astray, whereas if he didn't drink he would help to reform society, and we would soon do away with all inebriety. Then for the sake of society and the church of God, let each one try to abolish it at home and abroad. Then poverty and crime would decrease and be at a stand, and Christ's kingdom would soon be established throughout the land. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pause and think, and try to abolish the foul fiend, drink. Let such doctrine be taught in church and school, that the abolition of strong drink is the only home rule. This uh, we can see... The reception to uh, McGonagall's work was never um, that positive. (laughs) This is a New Year's resolution to leave Dundee. Welcome, thrice welcome to the year 1893, for it is the year I intend to leave Dundee. 
Owing to the treatment I receive, which does my heart sadly grieve. Every morning when I go out, the ignorant rabble they do shout. There goes mad McGonagall, and the riser shouts as loud as they can bawl, and lifts stones and snowballs, throws them at me, and such actions are shameful to be heard in the city of Dundee. And I'm ashamed, kind Christians, to confess that from the magistrates I can get no redress. Therefore I have made up my mind in the year of 1893 to leave the ancient city of Dundee, because the citizens and me cannot agree. The reason why? Because they disrespect me, which makes me feel rather discontent, and therefore to leave them I am bent, and I will make my arrangements without delay, and leave Dundee some early day. There are modern McGonagall's still around in the pages of local newspapers or Weatherspoon's news, penning truly dreadful poems, mostly about really mundane things. It's worth looking them out. Here's a classic example. Dear Tim, I thought you may wish to share my poem in the Weatherspoon's news magazine. Weatherspoon. Weatherspoon's pubs are the place to be. You can take the whole family. Young and old share the place, usually leaving with a smile on their face. Parents and children, husbands and wives, find Weatherspoon a sanctuary from their busy lives. Old friends gather new people yet to meet. Laughing and chatting, it really is a treat. New memories are made, old stories unfold. A cosy venue to escape the cold. Impressive buildings, each with a history to reveal. A focal point for many whilst taking a meal. The staff are friendly, enjoying what they do. A pub in which to partake a wine, even one or two. The range of beers and real ales, a combination that will never fail. Competitive prices and deals to boot. Weatherspoon's continued success to you, I salute. Thank you, Claire Yates from Hales Owen in the West Midlands. There is more to pubs than Weatherspoon's. There has got to be more than just the dreary, reimagined, repetitious things in every city and town up and down the whole country that chain pubs have turned into. Pubs should be a place of community, a place to share stories and a place to get together and enjoy life. And now on the current bun, we move from one employer who's right wing to another. Um, This is Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. This is a report from uh, Alabama in the southern United States from comrades uh, working to unionize the biggest Amazon warehouse uh, there. Amazon's unimaginable wealth and power, which has exploded since COVID, while millions have gone hungry in the US, was unleashed in Bessemer, Alabama, to crush the effort to form the first union at Amazon in the whole of the USA. They knew a victory there would trigger a wave of organising efforts at Amazon facilities across the country, and that Amazon workers organising in their own interests was a direct threat to their profit-making machine. That's why they pulled no punches in stopping the union drive from happening. And unfortunately, Bezos uh, was successful in doing that. But this defeat is not the end of the battle in Bessemer, nor the end of the battle between working people and Amazon across the world. The critical questions facing us in the wake of the defeat, and unfortunately, despite a year of organising across the 
the town and in the workplace. Um, unfortunately, not enough people voted to actually force Amazon to recognise a trade union initially for the purposes of bargaining. The overarching cause for this defeat is the brutal union-busting tactics, when all is said and done, will have cost them millions. The arm-twisted city officials into changing traffic light patterns at warehouse gates to stop people talking to workers. They lied to workers about what the union would do if the election won and threatened to close the warehouse. They are pressured USPS to install an illegal mailbox at the warehouse and then lied to workers about the deadline to vote so they could cast ballots early before people could actually talk to them. They organised an ongoing barrage of captive audience meetings in an attempt to inoculate workers against the union, which were then followed up by text messages. These are just some of many examples that will be revealed by Amazon's highly illegal, vicious union-busting strategy, which overtook the whole warehouse. So what were they so determined to protect? Every manoeuvre by Amazon came from their need to protect at all costs their ability to make enormous profits off the backs of their workers. Jeff Bezos made $90 billion during the pandemic, while workers were dying from contracting COVID-19 on the job, collapsing from the insane productivity requirements and having to go to the toilet in bottles to avoid being punished or fired by the company's barbaric time-off task tracking system. Despite not being a victory at the uh, warehouse, this drive has exposed people all over the country and the world to the fierce repression Amazon directs at their workers, and this will contribute to deepening anger against the and in time, more organising drives at Amazon. The retail, wholesale and department store union, who workers initially contacted to help with the union drive, will rightly appeal the loss for this election on the basis that Amazon played dirty. However, the process could take months, if not years. With a 10% month turnover rate at the warehouse, the union will essentially be starting again from scratch. We can't allow battles like this to get funnelled into a backroom conflict between lawyers. This will open the space for Amazon to inoculate new workers against the idea of joining a union and retaliate against worker activists. After the last union drive at Amazon... Leading worker Bill Howe in Delaware was fired just six months after the union was defeated. We urgently need to deepen organising in the warehouse in Bessemer and prepare to battle any threats to workers' jobs. The broader community, other trade unions, locally and nationally, can play a role in backing workers up. Solidarity actions against Amazon's union busting are being called across the country. Amazon will undoubtedly go on the defensive after this defeat. They challenged hundreds of ballots of pro-union workers, knowing this would stop them being included in the final tally to make their win look bigger than it was, or to kick the battle to the courts. They will make this as messy a battle as possible and scream for the youth tops that the hassle of fighting to join a union simply isn't worth it. We can't let them get away with this. This demonstrates the, the importance of workers getting organised to fight in our own interests. We need a bold and combative strategy to counteract the narrative that Amazon and big business whip up. With just an 11% union rate across America and just 6% in the private sector, the vast majority of workers at Bessemer had never been in a union before and had never participated in a union drive. Many workers simply wouldn't know what a union is. 
It isn't their fault, but it reflects the weakness of the US labour leadership in recent decades, particularly in the South, where right-to-work legislation has undermined a history of militant labour traditions. Amazon seized on this and, with all its money and union-busting experience, had space to convince many workers that all a union does is take a cut from your paycheck and give you nothing in return. In reality, unions are the only organisation that working people have to collectively fight in their own interests against the bosses. We need to educate a whole new generation of people about the importance of trade unions and the rich traditions of union militancy, which won us the weekend, the 35-hour work week, the minimum wage and other protections. As the battle in Bessemer goes to the courts, every worker needs to be talked to directly to convince them to support union moving forward. To be most effective in reaching and convincing other workers to join the struggle, this would need to be led by Amazon workers themselves. They could phone bank the names the union has contact for information for, go on house-to-house visits and meet other workers before and after shifts. All of this could be planned out in meetings held to discuss the next steps. But under the gruelling conditions of the pandemic, workers in Benzimer at least took the brave step of picking a fight with Bezos. And they boldly took an initiative where others didn't and attempted to win the first Amazon union in the country. Thousands of pro-union cards were collected at the warehouse gates 24 hours a day for two months by mostly black RWDSU, that's the union's initials, organisers, many of whom were recruited directly out of poultry plants in rural Alabama. There is a lot that the union did right. They made clear the links between the class struggle and the Black Lives Matter movement, as the majority black workforce demanded that Black Lives Matter at work too. They made sure the world was watching, pulling in figures like Bernie Sanders and developing an impressive media strategy that led to tens of thousands of articles on the Union Drive across the globe. It would be a fatal mistake to dismiss outright the role of organised labour or claim that existing unions have become too fossilised, too effective as a tool of struggle. Unions in the Birmingham area and the Labour Council stepped up to mobilise support for the Bessemer Amazon workers. Their collaboration has made huge steps forward in building labour solidarity and points the direction of how this can take a leading role in taking on bigger fights across the country. While Amazon's vicious union busting is the primary reason for this loss, it's also important to discuss what the union could have done differently. There was a lack of active involvement of Amazon workers themselves in developing the strategy of the union, an over-reliance on media, and generally an over-optimism from the union leadership about the likelihood of victory, which gave the impression that meetings of workers were unnecessary to discuss the way forward. The severity of this defeat is important because mass media coverage and even an all-out approach by union organisers can't be a substitute for genuine organising on the shop floor itself. There were key moments where Amazon's blatant cheating could have been exposed and used to galvanise opposition. Like picketing Amazon's illegal mailbox until it was removed, or removing anti-union messages from bathroom stalls, etc. In our view, the rank-and-file power of Amazon workers across America must be used to hold Amazon accountable, rather than the strategy of the leadership of the union relying on legal processes. 
This loss will no doubt be demoralising to millions who've watched with breathed breath as workers took on Jeff Bezos. Includes some on the left have drawn the conclusion that the prospect for organising in new industries such as Amazon is futile. We disagree. It would be disastrous to draw the conclusion that Amazon is too big to defeat. Working people in Seattle have defeated Amazon twice. First, they dumped a million dollars into local city council elections to try to kick out socialist Seattle city council member Shama Sawant, who is fighting to tax Amazon. And we won that election. And second, when they launched a ferocious campaign against the Amazon tax, again, we won that as well. Despite being a modern-day giant, Amazon is not unbeatable. And wherever workers land, that blow will set off an unstoppable chain reaction across the country. Taking lessons from Bessemer, where organising drives at Amazon kick off, organising committees should be established. Driven by workers from every department and shift, discussing a strategy to win union recognition. Amazon will always outspend us, but we can outnumber them with a strong democratic committee of leaders of workers that can bring everyone into the workplace into the fight. The logistics industry has grown immensely. Amazon itself exploded under the pandemic as people were forced to rely more on delivery services. The Suez Canal catastrophe provided some insight into the potential power of logistics workers. Just one ship created a potential economic crisis and cut into the profits of many major corporations. In many cities, Bezos's finely tuned profit-making empire relies on a few lanes of roads, Job actions and protests at strategic choke points in the global logistics network can leverage huge power for workers to demand real concessions out of billionaires. Many on the left are linking this defeat to the need to fight for the PRO Act, a bill that has passed the US House of Representatives and is waiting to be heard in the Senate. This law, if passed, would allow unions to overrule the right-to-work laws, ban captive audience meetings and interference by employers in union elections. Had this been in place, it would have helped the Bessemer Union election. And if passed, it would be a significant victory for Labour law, and of course we should fight for that. But on its own, without organisation from the shop floor as well, we need a bold fighting approach by the leadership of trade unions in order to win battles. It is the hesitancy from the Labour leadership to take this class struggle approach that could actually doom the pro-act from actually being passed. Given the fragile nature of Congress, the bill will not pass without huge mobilisation of unions across the country, including organising protests, rallies and workplace action if needed. If major unions mobilise their members to fight and we win, this would be a dramatic step forward. Across the country, over a thousand Amazon workers have already reached out to unions about being organised. The Teamsters Union say they have talked to hundreds of workers in Amazon warehouses in Iowa about unionising. Their approach, they say, will be different from Bessemer and that instead of relying on the Labour Relations Board, they will use strike action to bring Amazon to the table. Workers across Italy have been on strike over working conditions. Amazon may have cheated their way into a union defeat in Bessemer, but they can't put the genie back into the bottle. Amazon will attempt to seize on this defeat and ramp up attacks against pro-union workers across their empire. We need to prepare to ferociously defend against such attacks. 
watch out for the lies that the bosses want us to swallow. They want us to believe that Amazon is too big to beat, that winning in the trade unions is too hard. This will demoralise many people, but many others will be filled with rage because it's not just Amazon that people are facing. Workers everywhere are suffering and found hope in this inspiring union drive because they need a union too. While Amazon has the money, we have the people and we'll be stronger in the next round. This is just the beginning of the battle. Beware, beware the radio. Challenge your preconceptions about what radio should be like. Shatter, provoke and entertain. Listen to long-forgotten crackles of the past with fresh ears. Democracy Now! debates, challenges a tired media narrative that we're living in the best of all possible worlds. Beware the radio, beware the radio. It once was a fanzine to Keshko but morphed into an online station with reach that only Norfolk Digital could dream of. Diversify, expand, explore new musical terrain. Set your beams on high and widen with Andy Brain. Beware, 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 beware the radio. Beware Maria's musings on psychology, gender, sexuality and life. The current bun and all things current and not so current. Beware, he's fallen on his head. Beware film reviews with the Sample family. Explore the quirky, the unusual and the old. Listen to traditional songs dug up by archivists and hear them come to life in dusty Cornish pubs. There must be more to radio than predictable middle-of-the-road songs, endlessly repeated and punctuated with exhortations to keep on consuming. Beware the radio. Expand your horizons. Never be boring. Never be predictable. <laughs>